through the storm. Um, I'm grateful for the time that uh, you have even glanced at the handout. Uh, you know there's zero chance of getting through all of that. You know, I just kept writing and writing and writing and writing. I knew I was way past the, the line, you know, but I just wanted to keep going. Um, this is my last time teaching this class. Uh, next week, Thomas Berzowski will be here. I'll be gone for two weeks. Um, but you probably all sense there's more we could have talked about, you know, on this topic. Uh, every single week I get that feeling. So this is a big topic. And I might circle back, uh, you know, sometime in the future and do another six or seven weeks on Christ and culture. Because it is a very uh, pressing issue. It's something that's on our, our hearts all the time. So let's open in prayer and then we'll, we'll begin. Father, thank you for the time we have to study together. And uh, I pray that you would, you would be with us in this time, that you would be with me in particular, to be clear, uh, to be helpful to uh, my brothers and sisters here as we try to function in this world uh, that we live in. Uh, Lord, guide us, uh, help us uh, to know what you're calling each of us to do, to be. Father, we have a role to play in this world, and we want to be faithful to play it. I pray that you give us wisdom. We know that the Bible is sufficient. We don't need anything more than biblical teaching to please you and to serve you in our generation. So help us to see what's in the Bible and put it in practice. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so your handout basically is in two main parts. Two main parts. The first half is uh, walking through, I think, chapter 4 of Nancy Percy's um, Total Truth, what you would call a uh, worldview seminar, or a worldview kind of uh, test where you can go through the, the basic grid of creation, fall, redemption, and see how that lines up with other, other concepts, and just get good at that. Uh, and then part of her program uh, for Christians not passively, passively accepting a sideline role because of secularism, but instead standing firm and saying, we have every bit as much right to be here at the table and to make a case as the materialists do, as the atheists do and all that. We think even more. We think we have a far better world. I mean, wouldn't you much rather live out a biblical worldview than the nihilistic, depressing, materialistic worldview of evolution in which nothing, literally nothing matters. I don't know how anyone can live that out. None of them live it out consistently. They still get up in the morning and do stuff, I've noticed. The atheists, Christopher Hitchens, all these guys, they still write books. They still have purpose. They ought not to, especially them. Um, they ought not to, but we understand we have purpose. So this is a worldview that works. Now behind, in my mind, as I think about Christ and culture and our involvement, Christians' involvement in our world, I go again and again to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. You know that parable that Jesus told? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But at night, while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came and sowed wheat, weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, and the weeds also appeared, the man's servants came to him and said, I thought you sowed only good seed in your field. Where did these weeds come from? He said, an enemy has done this. The servant said, you want us to go and root up the weeds? He said, no. 
Because while you're rooting them up, you might root up the wheat, the wheat with them. Very interesting statement. If you try to root up the weeds, you might root up wheat along with them. Why? They look alike. You can't tell the difference. Did Saul of Tarsus look like weed or wheat two weeks before his conversion? You, you know the answer to that. You can't tell the difference. Unconverted elect people look the same as unconverted non-elect people. They look the same. They live the same kind of lives. And God is able to rescue them. We're filled with good hope. So what does that mean then? Well, what does the parable continue to say? Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, they'll separate and put the wheat in the barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So the separation comes at the end of the age. All right, so go back then. What does that mean for our lives now? It's mixed up. You're going to share the roads and the elevator and the workplace with non-Christians. You're going to be rubbing shoulders with them the rest of your life. And you're going to try to win them to Christ, and very, 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 very few of them will be one. Because most people are on that road to destruction. Only a few find, find Christ. But we're hopeful. We keep sharing. Whatever. In the meantime, how do we do life together? And that's, that's the challenge. How do, we, how do we do that? So the handout's in two parts. Kind of a worldview seminar. And then part two is Christians and politics. Christians and politics. And so uh, that's where many of you will feel the rubber meets the road. What is our, how should we engage in politics? So um, with your permission, or without it, I'm going to jump ahead uh, to the second half of the handout and do the politics stuff first, uh, give it as much time as I can, because my contribution here um, will be uh, a sufficiency of scripture argument from the book of Daniel. I'm going I'm to just try to find <coughs> Christians and politics principles from Daniel. There's certainly other books in the Bible that look to, and uh, I want to just give you a sense of that, but I want to do Christians and politics first for as much time as I feel led to do. Then we'll start going back because the worldview things are uh, a bit of a review. We've been over some of that, the three aspects of of the Christian worldview. What are they? Anybody want to volunteer without looking at the hand? Here's your pop quiz. What are the three basic elements, according to Nancy Percy, of, of a Christian worldview? Part one. Creation. Alright? Part two. Fall. Part three. Good news. Redemption. That those three parts, every worldview has to line up with that. You know, where did everything come from? Why is everything so messed up? How does it get made right again? Alright, so that's basically every worldview has to kind of... So we'll do that, but I want to dig in that uh, Christian public. My handout has different paginations, so I can read it without my reading glasses. What page is uh, Christians and politics for you guys? Alright, so just turn now. Turn to page 9. Let's dig in. Significant quandary. What should American Christians do about politics? Like, what quandary? I know exactly what to do about politics. Well, others struggle some, alright? Some people are very certain what Christians should do about politics, and they'll even share those views with their brother and sister Christians. So that's part of what makes it interesting. American politics becoming more and more divisive among Christians. Most evangelicals agree we are heading toward more and more overt hostility from our surrounding culture. You may not agree, but I think it's pretty obvious. Things are in a decaying orbit between 
biblical Christians and surrounding culture. And we don't expect that 25 years from now, we will be more loved by unconverted people in America than we are now. I think you get the feeling less. Uh, we're getting mixed signals from our governmental system. For example, the Supreme Court. You've got the uh, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges decision legalizing same-sex marriage. That was a big moment for evangelicals uh, in 2015. Uh, very much you get the feeling like whatever we were trying to do, we lost. All right, so whatever efforts we were trying to make, that was a loss, so people believe. But then you got the Roe v. Wade overturn uh, in June of this year, 2022. So it's mixed signals. What, what, what are we heading in the right direction? We're in the wrong direction. Hard to know. All right? Radically different views of government role. Uh, if you look at the Democratic, the average Democratic platform, you know, senators, you know, members of Congress, president, whatever, you get, a, you get a, a clear sense that if you are a consistent Christian, it's, it's easier to settle into one of those parties than the other. But the fact, that fact has itself led into difficulties where people are overtly embracing one of those parties and overtly rejecting the other and become very polarized in their thinking. And the way that the algorithms work with YouTube and with social media is it feeds you what you want. So you become more and more polarized, and that's true both sides. If they sense they believe the liberal, they're just going to feed you that stuff all the time because it's what you like, and you get more and more hardened. So you get this sense of division happening. It's going more and more. Wide-ranging differences in views among evangelicals and the level of involvement quality. Some are ardent activists, uh, and there are many types of us. You get just simple God, God, country people who just you know they're patriotic. Um, they're Christians. Um, they remember when, um, and they, they see it ebbing away quickly, and would like to see it go back to the way it used to be. Um, uh, they use language like America is a Christian nation, we need to reclaim, reclaim our heritage. Uh, others go even further on that spectrum into Christian nationalism, which I'm going to um, evaluate uh, based on an article that I read just laid out. I'm, I'm very well aware that some people that, that do believe in Christian nationalism, if I or others don't agree with them, will see people like me as part of the problem, not part of the solution, which I then would say that view is part of the problem, so on and on we go. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but it's just the spectrum. Christian nationalism or even theonomy, theocracy, you know, the nth degree, all of it, it's all on that spectrum of Christians that believe all of these things. Uh, and we'll define these terms later. Uh, Theonomy is the idea that all of society can and should be ruled by divine law as revealed in Scripture. All right? Just follow Scripture, do that, and we're, we're in a good place. All right? Others, however, other Christians, I'm talking about Christians now, are more separatistic. They're like, let the dead bury their own dead. We've got our own things to do. Our job is to share the gospel. You know, and they're just, they're just not really all that into politics. Uh, and they just don't don't get involved, uh, etc. And then others are more in the middle of the road. All right. So two key t uh, chapters on, on Christian politics. We have Romans 13, Revelation 13. Those are frequently lifted up and held side by side, showing some of the problem. Romans 13. Um, simply put, the Apostle Paul is saying Christians should submit to God-ordained authority. All right. We Christians are law-abiding folk, and so that includes government. Whose politics we need to submit to the government. So Romans 13. Can someone read this for us? Romans 13, 1 through 7. It's on your hand. 
Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, and consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring, judge, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Give revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. All right, very good. So that's Romans 13. Uh, I want to read Revelation 13 and then compare them briefly. Someone read that. Revelation 13, 1 through 8. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have uh, seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Okay. So... As you compare these two, um, I think it's more of a case that the beast from the sea represents a form of government, but it isn't hard to make that case. The language is very similar to Daniel 7, um, and so there's no doubt that the beast coming up out of the sea in Daniel 7 represent empires, because that's what Daniel 7 says. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's not so clearly said this, but it just says in verse... Um, uh, seven, he was given power to make war against the saints to conquer them, and he was given authority. He was given authority over every tribe, uh, people, language, and nation. So that's where Christians get the idea of a future one world government in, a, in a, the entire world under this. So, yeah, Romans 13, Revelation 13, how do they compare and contrast in terms of government, human government? How would you compare and contrast Romans 13 Revelation? What does Romans 13 tell you government is? How does it present? Romans 13, how does it present government? Good. Established by God. Says God's servant, serving God, 
What else? If you're doing good, you're in good shape. The government will commend you. You guys are all waiting for that. I've been doing good a long time. Never got a government commendation, but just hang in there. It will come at some point. But also, interestingly, says rulers hold no terror. This is from a man who spent lots of time in prison and who was executed by Rome. It's an interesting statement. Paul had no terror of being executed by Rome. Why is that? Why would Paul have no terror of being executed? To live as Christ, to die as gain. You must send me home. I just want to die well. That was his big concern in 2 Timothy 4. I want to die well. I don't want to forsake Christ. I don't want to, I don't want to yield to my fears. I want to die well. And I want to be a good witness to Nero, to the emperor. So, no terror. All right, so that's Romans 13. We should submit, we should obey. Uh, rulers are God's servant. This is where I get my definition of what is authority, the God-given right to command. Comes from Romans 13. God-given right to command, to give orders, all right? So, um, that's Romans 13. What about Revelation 13? What image of government do you get from Revelation 13? Hostile towards Christians. I can't hear you. Hostile towards Christians. Hostile toward Christians. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. What does that mean? Given power to make war against the saints and conquer them. Like God given authority. God, yeah. All right. But what do they do to the saints? What is the beast and the dragon? What do they do to the saints? How do they conquer the saints? Do they steal from the saints their eternal, their place in heaven? No, not at all. What do they take from the saints? Their lives. We're talking about martyrdom. But also other things short of martyrdom, such as incarceration, loss of life, liberty, or property, that kind of thing. So, that's what it looks like. All right. Um, the saints. Which saints? All the saints. And basically you get the sense in Revelation, as in Daniel, that the saints are hiding. They're running for their lives. They're, you know, Jesus said, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, run for the hills. Basically what he says. To summarize what he says, flee for your lives. Read about it in Matthew 24. That's what he says. Mark 13. Run for your lives. Why? So that you'll live. Because if you stay there, you're going to die. And so that's what it looks like. So this is government, Revelation 13 is government at its worst. And likened in Daniel 7 to beasts, ravenous beasts. And this is a conglomerate beast where different beasts from Daniel 7 are all kind of put together in some grotesque assembly. And the dragon, if you have any wondering who the dragon is, he gets like four names in Revelation 12. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. He's got all four names in one place. You don't have to wonder who the dragon is. And so here is government as a puppet of Satan. A puppet doing Satan's will overtly. We also have the worship aspect where government and, and religion are combined in the one. Because it says they're all going to worship the beast. And say who's like the beast? And who can make war with him, etc.? Now, the book of Revelation, notoriously the hardest book in the Bible to interpret, no doubt about it. 
But I think it's very, very hard to make the case that all of the things written about in the book of Revelation have been fulfilled already by the Roman Empire or something like that. This doesn't seem like why the Holy Spirit would give it to 20 centuries of Christians. Right? Instead, what I think is Jesus gave us uh, this pattern concerning um, eschatology. As it was, so it will be. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the end of the world. So what does that mean? You get dress rehearsals. You get things that happen that are very much like what will happen again. And so we get that with the destruction of, of, of Jerusalem in AD 70. Dress rehearsal. End of the world. All right? So I think you read it, it's like, yeah, that was going on during Rome. It's going on with the persecution by Rome of Christians. All of that happened. But it's just dress rehearsal for the end of the world. So I think that's how I interpret it. If you disagree, it's fine. I understand. Revelation's a hard book to interpret. But I think this is saying something about the future. And the more you look at the details of Revelation, it's very hard to make the case that any of that stuff's ever happened. Like a third of the ocean turned to blood. When did that happen? Oh, it's just symbolic. Okay? Symbolic of what? Please tell me what that symbolizes. Seems ecological to me. <laughs> and is there a connection between human sin and environmental destruction? Yes, from the Garden of Eden. From the very beginning, you'll wrestle with the ground and produce thorns and thistles for you. There are environmental or ecological effects of human sin. But not the fullest yet. That gets ramped up at the end of the world. God's going to destroy this planet because of human sin. And he's going to make a new one. He's going to raise, I believe, the planet from death to life. Just like he's going to raise our bodies. So that's another thing from the Alright, when you write a 17-page outline, don't add extra stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, herein lies the quandary. Romans 13, Revelation 13, what do Christians do about government? Because there are both aspects going on right now. It's not like suddenly there's a satanic influence over human government at the end of the world. Not at all. It was going on all along. Going on all along. All right, different settings, different eras, different columns, all right? In ancient Rome, Christians had literally no power to affect government policies. Well, that's not totally true. Paul could make his appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen. He could make an appeal on a, on a specific case, like his own case. He could make an appeal. But think about the entire policy. Like, remember when it says that Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome? That's a Roman policy. Get rid of all the Jews from Rome. What, what do you think Christians could have done to affect the policy? I mean, you can go make the case, but... What do you think will happen to you later that afternoon? You know, as you go make the case. <laughs> I mean, you're you're I mean, you're gonna be arrested yourself. So very, very hard, right? So we have very little power, if any at all. So also in many countries at various times in history, Christians have the same amount of influence over the government. Maybe none. None. But in other settings, Christians have been the ruling power, able to make laws that they feel best suits. They're Christian convictions. There were Christian kings in Christendom in the Middle Ages who genuinely seemed to have been born again and they got to run their country. And they, there was no separation of church and state. They just set up a Christian kingdom so they defined with good or bad effects. So sometimes it's that way. In other settings like America, we're sharing power with non-Christians. And that's led us to the problem we have, which I've been battling against this whole course, which is secularism. They say, the non-Christians say, rules of the game for the common public square is secularism. We all agree, nod your head, we all agree, God's left out, right? Why do we ever agree to that? 
So we're pushing back on that, saying, no, we're not going to leave God out. This is what the Bible says. This is what we believe. This is what's best. We have to do that. We can make the case. But in any case, in terms of actual policies and sharing power, we share power with non-Christians in deliberative bodies. You could have some Supreme Court justice genuinely born again and others ardently opposed to Christ. And they have to work together and do law together. Same thing in, in state legislatures, all over the place. America. So, we recognize that the freedoms we have in America are not guaranteed to all on planet Earth. It could be self-evident that God created all men equal and that we all have these inalienable rights, but they don't seem to be recognized in many countries. So we understand that you can, you can lose those rights. You can not have them, or you can have had them and lose them. So the freedoms we have are, it seems, a stewardship. And the question is, what can and should we do to protect those freedoms? Uh, they could, we don't want to lose them through negligence or through bad actions. Freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to dissent from the government without fear of penalty. To say, I disagree with the government along with this power to influence policies by the ballot box. These are all freedoms. It, anybody who knows anything about the governments around the world, you know that they're not guaranteed that we will have them while we breathe. So the question is, are we in danger of losing them? We don't use alarmist rhetoric. The thing is, we know at least logically possible to have had them at one point and no longer have them. So it's a stewardship matter. Um, and that's the question, how do we best Steward. Now that some terms, all right, this comes from an article I read from Christianity Today, which itself is a dubious source. Hate to say that, but there it is. Um, it used to be less dubious, but now it is. But I found the article helpful. Um, here I sail out into turbulent waters. If you disagree with the definitions, that's fine. The terms themselves need to be defined. Patriotism, nationalism, Christian nationalism, and then on a critique of nationalism and Christian nationalism. All right, first patriotism. Patriotism. I'm just reading the article now. Uh, patriotism is the love of country. It's different from nationalism, which is an argument about how to define our country. Christians should recognize that patriotism is good because all of God's creation is good, and patriotism helps us appreciate our particular place in it. Our affection and loyalty to a specific part of God's creation helps us to do the good work of cultivating and improving the part we have happened to live in. As Christians, we can and should love the United States, which also means working to improve our country by holding it up for critique and working for justice when it airs. I didn't find anything objectionable about that. I thought it was helpful. So I commend it to you as a definition of patriotism. Next, nationalism. Most scholars agree that nationalism starts with the belief that humanity is divisible into mutually distinct, internally coherent cultural groups defined by shared traits like language, religion, ethnicity, or culture. From there, scholars say nationalists believe that these groups should each have their own governments and that government should promote and protect a nation's cultural identity, and that sovereign national groups provide meaning and purpose for human beings. Again, this is just definition. Not evaluated. He's about to evaluate. But he's not evaluating yet. Again, he may disagree with the definition of what nationalism is. All right, third, Christian nationalism. <clears throat> Christian nationalism is the belief that the, that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the, uh, the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. Scholars 
like Samuel Huntington, have made a similar argument. America is defined by its Anglo-Protestant past and that we will lose our identity and our freedom if we do not preserve our cultural inheritance. Again, just a definition of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. Are there people that hold these views? There are. Um, and they're rising in their vocal um, involvement in the public square. Now we come to uh, this guy's critiques, uh, Miller's critiques. Uh, humanity is not easily divisible into mutually distinct cultural units. Cultures overlap, borders are fuzzy. Since cultural units are fuzzy, they make a poor fit as the foundation for political order. Cultural identities are fluid and hard to draw boundaries around, but political boundaries are hard and semi-permanent. Attempting to found politi political legitimacy on cultural likeness means political order will constantly be in danger of being felt as illegitimate by some group or other. Cultural pluralism is essentially inevitable in every nation. When nationalists go about constructing their nation, they have to define who is and who is not part of the nation. But there are always dissidents and minorities who, who do not or cannot conform to the nationalist preferred cultural template. In the absence of moral authority, nationalists can only establish themselves by force. Scholars are almost uh, unanimous that nationalist governments tend to be authoritarian, become authoritarian and oppressive in practice. You know, Nancy Percy makes the same point. All utopian societies have to deal with people who don't agree with the vision of the utopia. What do they do with, what do you do with those people? What do you do with the people who don't think that the government should confiscate all property and share it equally as in communists? Well, what did those communist governments do with those people? Well, they put them in, in gulags. They arrested them and killed them. So that's what you have, you have to just figure out. What are, what are you going to do with the dissidents? What are you going to do with the ones that, dis that don't agree? You have to figure that out. That's a problem. Right? My son texted me. He didn't know I was working on news. So Calvin texted me this past week. Does God believe in freedom of religion? It blew my brain up. <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> Let me ask a question, all right? Do you think there are going to be any dissidents in heaven? The, the ultimate utopia. Any dissidents? Absolutely not. Will there be any disagreement in heaven? Absolutely none. Why? Because we're going to be one as the Father and the Son are one. Is there any disagreement in the Trinity about the smallest detail? No. The problem is that God only affects that, the total transformation of the human heart at the stage of salvation called glorification. Before glorification, I don't know if you've noticed in Baptist churches, we don't all agree. Have you ever noticed? We don't all agree about everything. Working on it, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me, Jesus said, moving toward unity is a good thing. The more unified we can become, the better. The better witness will be. But we're not there yet. I want to tell you something. The elders, we like each other, don't we? We, we do. We, do we agree about everything? <laughs> he says no. James, we, he's saying no. We don't agree with everything. How do we come to agreement? We work on it. We pray together. We agree to agree ultimately so we can present unity to the church and we try to get there. That's what we try to do. That's what we're working with. Short of that total transformation of the human heart that happens at glorification, you're going to have disagreements. More aggressive disagreements or dissidents, we just straight out don't agree. 
So I can't give Calvin a simple answer. Does God believe in religious freedom? I'm a Baptist. In this world, we Baptists believe in religious freedom. Why is that? Because you know you can't coerce faith. It's just apples and oranges. You can threaten somebody if they don't do the five points of Islam. All right? You can, you can, if they won't say the slogan, and if they won't make the pilgrimage, and if they won't do the prayers and all that, cut, cut chop off their head. All right. If you don't care that much about religion and you live in a, in a country just overrun by Islamic power, what are you going to do? Become a Muslim. Because they don't care what, that much what's going on in the heart. They care about behavior. They care about your slogans, your outward patterns, and all of that. Do Christian, does Christianity care what's going on in the heart? Oh, yes, we do. You ought to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And you know what's amazing? You don't even have control over your own heart. Never mind someone else's. Can you make your heart good? Can you give yourself a heart transplant? You can. So I would have to answer Calvin, yes and no. God does believe in religious freedom now, short of glorification. This is the best form of government that we have. To get along with people who are not Christians, to find some way to do government together. That's what I think. All right? I, I just don't believe in compelling people to act like Christians who aren't really Christians. That's been tried, guys. That's the Middle Ages in Europe. Do you know how many revivals there were after battles? All right? um, so some Christian king would win a battle and bring out all the losers to a river. All the pagan German losers. Right? Convert or die. Revival broke out. <laughs> Convert to what? What's it? Jesus? Who's that? Don't worry. Just go in the water. Get under the water. Come out. You're baptized. Now, as a Baptist, I'm like, that's really bad. That's a bad thing. They're not Christians. They're pagans. And they, they don't even know the gospel. They don't know anything. Is it possible later they'll find out the gospel and become gentle? Yes, I think that actually did happen a lot. But that's not how it happens. As a Baptist, I'm like, that's bad. All right? I even read Daniel 6 when Darius, after Daniel's rescued from the lion's den, says, Therefore I issue a decree that everyone in my kingdom should fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Like, don't do that. That's a bad edict. You're like, no, that's awesome. No, it's not. Or what? Suppose I don't fear and reverence the God of Daniel. You're going to throw me in the lion's den? Will that make me fear and reverence the God of Daniel? It doesn't make any sense. I want to persuade, I want to preach, I want to live, I want to pray for them, I want to do evangelism, I want to do all that, but I'm not throwing people in lion's dens who don't fear and reverence my God. So how would you answer Calvin's question? Because he's still waiting for an answer. Does God believe in religious freedom? Do you like the yes and no answer? Does God believe in religious freedom or diversity of religion in heaven? Let's start there. That's easy. No. What's he going to do to the dissonance? You know what he's going to do. And he sorts them out on Judgment Day. He's going to collect the wheat and bring it to the barn. He's going to burn up the chaff and quench it in fire. That's what God does. All right? But before that, should human governments imitate God by gathering the wheat in the barns and burning up the chaff and quench it in fire? We don't have that power. So Baptists have argued, no, we don't do that. We set up systems in which people can get along. So this is, this is what, what we do at any rate. What do Christian nationalists want that is different from normal Christian engagement in politics? Again, I'm just reading these guys' article. Uh, I, just so you know, I believed in it enough to give it to you. I wouldn't, I mean, you know, I'm not like, I don't know what I think. I'm not saying that. I thought it was good. You guys may disagree. These are, and now we're into evaluation. So we've evaluated Christian nationalism. 
Christian nationalists want to define America as a Christian nation, and they want the government to promote a specific cultural template as the official culture of the country. Some have advocated for an amendment to the Constitution to recognize America's Christian heritage. Others to reinstitute prayer in public schools. Some work to enshrine a Christian nationalist interpretation of American history in the school, in school curricula, including that America has a special relationship with God or has been chosen by Him to carry out a, spe a special mission on earth. Uh, others advocate for immigration restrictions specifically to prevent a change to American uh, religious and ethnic demographics or a change to American culture. Some want to empower the government to take stronger action to circumscribe, circumscribe moral behavior. Right here is just kind of saying people think this in connection with Christian nationalism. It's clear he doesn't think this is best. Um, how can Christians be politically engaged without being Christian nationalists? American Christians in the past were exemplary in helping establish the American experiment, and many American Christians worked to end slavery, segregation, other evils. They did so because they believed Christianity required them to work for justice, but they worked to advance Christian principles, not Christian power or Christian culture, which is the key distinction between normal Christian political engagement and Christian nationalism. Normal Christian political engagement is humble, loving, and sacrificial. It rejects the idea that Christians are entitled to primacy of place in the public square, or that Christians have a presumptive right to continue their historical predominance in American culture. You should read that again. That's what normal Christian engagement rejects. We don't, we're not looking for that. That's not our agenda. So read that again. Uh, it rejects the idea that Christians are entitled to primacy of place in the public square or that Christians have a presumptive right to continue their historical predominance in American culture. What I would argue should have predominance in the public square is what is true and right and just as we make arguments in that sort of way, not simply because Christians are in charge and we're going to set the policy whether you agree or not. I would argue for making a case. Like whatever Paul did in the, in the Jewish synagogues, right? He would go in and what would he do? He'd argue from Scripture. He'd reason with people from Scripture. That's what I want to see happen. Um, so, those are my views, laying my cards on the table. Today, Christians should seek to love their neighbors by pursuing justice in the public square, including by working against abortion, promoting religious liberty, fostering racial justice, protecting the rule of law, and honoring constitutional processes. Let me give you an example. When we were uh, in the journey and, and the battle on, on homosexual marriage, or gay marriage, so-called gay marriage, etc., it became obvious that some Christians felt that they had to leave the Bible at the door, kind of check it at the door, and make more kind of different arguments. I don't agree. Bring the Bible right in and make your case. From the beginning, the Bible has defined, God in the Bible has defined marriage as one man, one woman, covenant relationship for life. And you just keep saying that. And you say other things. I don't mind bringing in thousands of years of history of jurisprudence. Do that. If you're going to do stare decisis on Roe versus Wade, why not on marriage? Threw that one right out the window. Thousands of years of heritage on marriage, redefined in a, in a half a generation. But all I'm saying is, in light of this whole course, don't check the Bible and don't bring it in. Make a case. And if they say, you can't say it, why not? Why can't I say it? The Bible says this is, the Bible's been key in our understanding of truth, et cetera, it seems, it's sort of, that's what I would do. But what I really believe in the Bible. Should they? I think so. <laughs> but I know they won't, but I want to keep making the case. So I'm not saying let's not do it secularly. Let's do it as Christians in the public square.
All right, that's evaluation over. Uh, it's five till, I want to go on into gaming. So ordinarily I would stop and say, any thoughts? I think there probably will be thoughts, many. But if we do thoughts right now, we probably won't do gaming. So I just want to keep them. All right, so if you want to have thoughts, find me some other time. <laughs> find each other and talk about them. Anyway, lessons on politics in the book of gaming. Daniel is uniquely positioned to help us. All right, and what I want to do is I want to commend this book the book of Daniel, to say how helpful this book is. Why is it? Well, it just has to do with the circumstances in redemptive history. What was going on? When was Daniel written? What were the events? It was during the lowest point in Jewish history. All right? They had failed to keep the covenant, and God had expelled them from the promised land um, forcefully because they had broken his laws and failed to keep his covenant. So I'm going through this in Ezekiel literally every day. I'm swimming in those words. Ezekiel 1 through 21, the first 21 chapters, God again and again and again and again and again and again tells the Jews why he's kicking them out. There's no wondering. It's because they're idolatrous, they're immoral, they're wicked like the Canaanite nations around them. They did not keep the covenant, they did not love him. Um, they followed other gods and goddesses, and God warned them and warned them and warned them, and now the time has come. That's it. I mean, there's no mystery. That's why. So, Ezekiel and Daniel are contemporaries. Daniel was among those young nobles that were, were exiled. And so, at that key moment in which Jews might be tempted to think it's over, it's over. God's done with Israel. He's done with the nation of Israel. He's done with the Jews. We're, we're finished. God steps in and in these incredible 12 chapters says, far from it. What you need to understand, I think this may be a quick off-the-cuff theme statement for the book of Daniel. The theme statement is stated again and again. God is saying to his people on earth, I am sovereign over the nations on earth, and I rule over them in detail. And I hold them accountable for what they do, and I will judge them for their wickedness. And I'll judge them for their wickedness by bringing the next pagan nation along to conquer them. And if they behave badly, I'm going to judge them too. And in the end, I'm going to set up a kingdom that will be perfect and pure and last forever. And all of these corrupt, wicked governments will be like chaff in the wind. They'll be gone forever. Watch me do it. That's in But there's sub-themes. Like, can a believer, a strong, pious, godly believer, be involved in a government like that? Yeah. Yes, you can. Daniel was. Can he, be, can he be involved and not compromise his principles? Yes. Can he be involved and at some point cross the pagan government enough that they want the government wants to kill them? Yes. And can God preserve the life of such faithful subjects? Yes, he can do that. Doesn't always, but he can do that. So how are we to function? How are we to function? And also prophecies, visions. Where is it all going? Where do you think those images came from in Revelation 13? They came, as I already said, from the book of Daniel. This is the same message. The government is going to go from bad to worse to much worse, to the worst ever. That's the future. That's where we're headed. But guess what? Daniel said, the saints are going to win in the end. The saints are going to win. The meek will inherit the earth. All the wicked tyrants will be judged, and we will rule, and Jesus will rule over us. He will be the king over many kings, 
and the Lord remains forever. So, if you don't want a government job, you shouldn't be a Christian because you're going to get one. All right, you're going to rule, and there'll be saints ruling over you unless you're the top number one ruler under Jesus. Which I'd be honored to meet you. I don't know who you are, but please come shake my hands. I want you to know. I'm going to be sitting at Jesus' right in the kingdom. All right? Jesus said, there is such a slump. If you think you're that person, I am honored to meet you. Come and identify yourself. We'll have an interesting conversation. But I think there'll be a hierarchy of redeemed saints with people over us and under us, and we won't have a problem with it. We will just not have a problem with it. We will be done with rebellion, and done with lording it over, and done with pride in every form, and we'll just fit into the slots God has for us, and we will rule forever. So like I said, you're going to have a government job. I didn't say you're going to have one here on earth now, but I'm saying you're going to have one next Wednesday. All right, that's the summary. Now we have 15 minutes to kind of walk through the chapters. And all I did the other day is I just wrote Daniel 1 and then just wrote out of my head what those chapters were. I didn't give you any quotes. I'm just giving you themes. If you want to line it up, I would commend you to do it. But this is me just giving you quick summaries in light of our theme today, which is how should Christians think about government? I was thinking about that. And what does Daniel 1 tell us? What does Daniel 2 tell us? 3, 4, 5, that's what it is. So the main time, let's walk through Daniel 1. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Babylonian names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we never remember their Jewish names. You know Daniel's Jewish name, and hardly ever remember his Babylonian name. Odd, but I'll keep moving. Anyway, resolved not to defile themselves with Babylonian food, dietary regulations, all right? They were 10 times, or found 10 times more excellent than all the others in the governmental program, and they were established in governmental posts as well. So there's the question right away. You get some godly people who are are pure in their private lives, determined to follow God even if it inconveniences them, and God elevates them by giving them evident qualities. The reason that they were found ten times better than all their Babylonian counterparts is they just were. They were just good. They were brilliant. They were well-positioned, and, and they ended up being chosen by Babylonian rulers, ultimately Nebuchadnezzar, for key government posts. Daniel, above them all. So that's Daniel chapter 1. Lesson. Christians can be excellent in government service, but it is vital that they not compromise their principles and maintain personal holiness through the discipline of their appetites. So the issue of what you eat or don't eat is pretty big in life, just in general. Because you know in Philippians, it talks about pagans, their God is their stomach. So if you control your appetites, you're going to be more likely to serve in a holy manner. So that's kind of lesson from chapter 1. Alright? Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in which a succession of world empires is depicted on a statue. Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly iron, partly clay. The statue is struck by a rock of supernatural origins, cut out without the human hands, it says, which turns into an uh, entire, with, sorry, which turns the entire statue into a pile of rubble that a wind sweeps away, listen to this, without leaving a trace. That's huge. All of those empires, gone, destined so let me just pause right there. How does that help you just with the whole Christian politics then? Just knowing the whole thing's headed to dust in the wind. I think you just hold it loosely. Yeah. It's like it doesn't mean that we don't work or strive, but it's kind of very open. All of them. Yeah. All of them. Including the American democracy, American Republic. All of All of them. There's going to be one government that rules the whole world for all eternity, and that's the kingdom of God. That's where we're headed. It's all uh, heading toward chaff. All right. But the rock becomes a mountain that fills the whole world. 
Isn't that awesome? This rock starts small, gets big. In that case, it's like a growing, living rock. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and becomes a mountain, fills a hole. Lesson. The kingdom of Christ will destroy all human kingdoms and bring them to a complete end, and it will itself fill the whole world for all eternity. That's almost a, a paraphrase of a verse in the answer. Pretty much. That's where we have it. All right, thing three. Nebuchadnezzar makes a golden idol. Parenthetically, I do believe that that's his answer to his dream now that it's been interpreted. Really? Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, not on my watch. I'm going to make the whole statue gold. I'm going to go on forever. That's his intent. That's, I don't know for sure that that's what he was thinking, but it seems that way when the whole thing's gold top to bottom. And then he orders all of his prefects and whatever, they're all government, low-level government officials in the capital city to gather around the statue. So he's making the, his, his leaders under him bow down to the statue, forcing them. All right? You know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to. They're thrown to the fiery furnace. God protects them and rescues them from Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Really, really awesome. Right? Remember what they said. They said, um, you know, the God we serve is able to rescue us from the fiery furnace, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not bow down and serve your statue. All right, so that's what he's saying. Remember the, the blasphemy that Nebuchadnezzar uttered. He said, now, if you are willing to bow down to my statue, fine, but if not, I'm going to throw you in the fiery, fir fiery furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue from my hand? That's blasphemy, right? Well, he got his answer. That God can rescue from me. But what I think is so cool, and I shared this with a number of you before, but uh, maybe you've heard it, uh, but maybe you have, and others haven't heard it. All right, do you remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace, and there was one like a son of the gods that was in there with them, I think, pre-incarnate Christ? Do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar did? He yells into the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. It's an interesting moment. Is that an immoral command? Come out of the furnace. No. There's nothing immoral. They're not violating because they did it. Is it an enforceable command? Not at all. <laughs> Why would I say it's not enforceable? Suppose I say, no, you send someone in here to get us. <laughs> that was already tried. What happened to the soldiers that threw them in? They all got incinerated. No one could come in to get them. But what did they do? They humbly obeyed. Wherein they could obey, they obeyed. They weren't defiant or arrogant. They were submissive. They were respectful. They were not going to violate God's laws. Lesson. Christians must never yield to oppressive government laws that compel them to disobey God's commands. God will protect his people who make such a stand for his glory. That doesn't mean they don't get martyred. We're about to go to worship, and I'm going to preach on the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And I'm going to say he is a symbol of Christian martyrs throughout the centuries. God doesn't always swoop down and rescue us. Sometimes he lets us die. All right, Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in which he is represented as a mighty tree that shelters and feeds all manner of birds and animals and which can be seen to the ends of the earth. God commands that the tree be felled and stripped, specifically that his mind be changed to that of an animal for seven years until he humbles himself and recognizes that God rules over all the kingdoms of the human race and that God demands that all governments be kind to the poor and needy and not oppress them. Can someone read the Daniel quotes I have for you here? It's the only thing... No, not the only one, but Cain of Force is my favorite. Someone read it. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, 
and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? The next one too. <clears throat> now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Tell you what, there's something powerful about the statement that Nebuchadnezzar makes when he says, No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? You realize what that means? God is omnipotent and not accountable to us. He doesn't owe any of us an explanation. And yet, he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He doesn't have to tell Abraham why he's destroying Sodom. But he does. He explains it. Alright? And he explains it to us in pages of scripture. And I believe he'll spend eternity explaining himself to us. Every decision he ever made, he wants us to know. Why? Because he loves us. He wants us to think like he does and understands his reasons, so he will. All I'm saying is he doesn't have to. He doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you an explanation. It's pretty powerful. Lesson. All rulers should humble themselves before God and use their power wisely for the blessing of the people. God has absolute power to judge all rulers. He is sovereign, establishing one and destroying another. A sub-theme, even the most wicked tyrant in government can be converted. So we don't give up hope and we pray for rulers that they would be converted. The God who converted Nebuchadnezzar can convert the worst tyrant. We never give up. So that's why martyrs tend to be very kind to their oppressors. They tend to pray for them, like Stephen did, and etc. Because we believe God can still rescue them. In the five. Belshazzar has an idolatrous feast in which he openly blasphemes God. God responds by sending a prophetic warning, which he cannot read, the writing on the wall. Daniel does read it. It says, your days are numbered and now brought to an end. That very night, uh, Belshazzar died and his empire ended. Uh, I love this statement Daniel makes to this wicked king. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You realize how important that is for government. Every single ruler, no matter how high or low, who has authority, should realize that God holds in his hand their life and all their ways. And we Christians have the right to say that to people. John MacArthur just wrote an open letter to Governor Newsom. Some of you may have read it. It's just nothing but scripture and warning to the man. It's just warning. If you continue in the way you go, you're going to go to hell. I mean, you ought to read it. It's interesting. Dude, I think Christians have a prophetic role to read the writing on the wall to tyrants and say, this is where this whole thing's heading. We have that prophetic role, even if they kill us while we're in. And we're going to play that. We're going to play that. Lesson, God will judge all wicked and idolatrous rulers who do not live for his glory, and their end will come very swiftly and violently. It can happen in a night. Done. God has that kind of power. Daniel 6. Daniel is a skillful and powerful magistrate in the Persian, uh, Persian kingdom. Competent and hardworking. By the way, I don't know anyone like him in history, in political history, who was the third highest ruler in an empire that gets toppled and then made the third highest ruler in the next empire that did the toppling. That never happens. What happened to all the other rulers in the other empire that just said? They're all killed. Rounded up and killed, for the most part. 
They're certainly not given power, but Daniel had that position in Babylon and then had it in the Medo-Persian Empire. So he is a government official. Um, he's very skillful and powerful and capable. His power causes others to feel jealous and they conspire against him. Daniel's personal piety, namely his practice of praying three times a day, is the only way his enemies can think to attack him. So they manipulate King Darius into a wicked edict that results in Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. But God rescues Daniel miraculously blesses Christians can have a very powerful and important position, can have very powerful and important positions in pagan governments. And they can develop very close and even loving relationships with pagan rulers. I believe that Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar and cared about him and was grieved over his judgment in Daniel 4 and warned him to stop oppressing poor people. He said, maybe then your prosperity will continue. I clearly, I think he wanted his prosperity to continue. He did not feel that way about Belshazzar. He said, if you're done, and no, I don't want your purple robe <laughs> and your gold chain. I have no interest. It's a very different vibe in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 6, Daniel's much older now. He's an old man. And Darius clearly loves him and cares about him. Clearly cares about him. So there's that relational aspect where Christians can have good relationships, working relationships with people who don't share our convictions or our religion. All right? Um, it is vital for them to be skillful and hardworking at their jobs, but also to be faithful in prayer and personal godliness. God can protect his people from evil attacks. And then finally, Daniel 7. Daniel has a vision of four great beasts coming from the sea. These beasts represent a succession of wicked human empires which dominate the history of the world through their power and oppression. Because of their wicked power, even the saints are crushed by their oppression for a limited time. But God, ruling on a heavenly throne of fire, overrules all things and has power to bring all nations in subjection to King Jesus, the Son of Man. The vision is in that chapter. Secondarily, the little horn represents the coming ruler, the Antichrist, who will be the final phase of wicked human government. Lesson. Jesus is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. His coming kingdom will rule over all the earth. But in the meantime, the wicked empires dominate human history, resulting in much suffering to the people of God. I would say Daniel 7 may be one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. There is no clearer Old Testament depiction of the deity of the Messiah than Daniel 7, the Son of Man vision. I believe that's why Jesus called himself Son of Man all the time. It's like, read Daniel 7, read Daniel 7, read Daniel 7. Why? Because he is human and divine. But the lesson of Daniel 7 is nestled in the issue of wicked governments, a succession of wicked governments who act like beasts. They're mindless, ravenous beasts, and they trample people, including Christians. Christians are generally not the movers and shakers. Christians are generally the moved and shaken. We're generally like flotsam on the sea. But we are, we are the point of redemptive history. We're the focus. And God will elevate us in the meek will inherit the earth. What does that mean? We're going to rule. We're going to rule under Christ. Daniel 7 openly says it. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Then... The Antichrist, the horn, will speak against the Most High and oppress the saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. By the way, Paul 
specifically picks up on language from Daniel to talk about the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2, and that man has not come yet. It hadn't come when Paul wrote his epistle. It's not a Roman emperor. It is an end-of-the-world figure that he calls the man of sin, and Jesus will destroy him by the splendor of his coming. So that hasn't happened yet. He's actually saying to the Thessalonians, cool your jets on eschatology. Don't sell everything and get white robes and wait on the roof of your house. Do your jobs. Wait on the Lord to come. Wait for His coming. When He comes, He's going to destroy the man of sin. Who is that? Only John calls Him the Antichrist, but that's, that's who we're talking about. So Daniel 7 talks about that. The Antichrist will speak against the Most High and oppress the saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to Him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, the power will be taken away, and completely destroyed forever. Then, look at verse 27. The sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven will be handed over to who? The saints. Where, what happened to Jesus? Oh, he's in the verse, just not yet. So the power gets handed over in the whole world to us. The saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom, the His in that statement, is God, Most High. Most High, God's kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers, that's us, will worship and obey Him. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's where we're heading on government. I think it's very hopeful. In the meantime, we have, I think, in, in Daniel 1 through 7, some really helpful principles of how to act. So it's closing I want to thank you for the time we've had to meet, to gather, to um, assemble freely, free from fear. We thank you for that. We thank you for our, our country and the freedoms that we have here. Help us to be good stewards. Lord, help us to realize the Bible is sufficient to guide us in these turbulent times. Help us, O oh Lord, to not to go after fool's gold, something that it is not for us to seek in terms of temporal power and control and certain definitions that the Bible doesn't espouse. Help us to realize that those days are coming in eternity. In the meantime, help us to be good stewards of what we have here and learn the lessons that we've walked through today from the book of Daniel. In Jesus' name.